The Start On Demand. Hey, hey, it's GMAC. It's The Start On Demand. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. If you can, we'd love for you to join us live 6 a.m. till 10 a.m. every weekday morning. You don't have to spend the whole four hours with us, but pop in. I think you'll like what you hear. Here's a sample of what we did today. Talked about gas prices. They are dropping, and they're dropping kind of quick. Under a buck? Who knew we were ever going to celebrate that? But here we are. Self-checkouts. Do you like them? Do you use them? Do you have a philosophy about them in terms of whether or not it's costing somebody a job if you use it? We got together, had coffee, and talked about that. And how about obscure Manitoba celebrity connections? One CNN anchor revealed his very strong Winnipeg connection. It goes back a long way. We'll share that with you along with the look to the north, Chuck Davidson, part of a group looking at and studying the strengths of northern Manitoba. How do we market that? How do we share that with the world? And how do we create even more economic activity in that great part of our province? The throne speech yesterday. We didn't really hear anything from the province with regards to the meth crisis. Reaction from several sides on that, including the MGEU and what they would like to see the government do about the meth crisis. All sorts of things happening with Donald Trump in Washington. Reggie Cicchini walks us through those. Milt Stiegel, one of the all-time favorite athletes in Winnipeg sports history, joined us in studio this morning. And fantasy author Sam Biko, our first visit with her. Her books have a Winnipeg slant. They take place in Winnipeg to a certain extent. And she gave us some great advice on encouraging the young author artist in your family what should you do to encourage the young people in your world to get the most of their love for art whether it be sculpture painting music or writing all that and much more coming up in this edition of the start on demand thanks for sharing downloading and of course subscribing to the start on demand if you hit that subscribe button it'll show up in your inbox every single weekday Let's get down to it. Je m'appelle Greg Mackling, Loren <laughs> McNabb, Jeff Braun, Kelly Moore, along with Jeff Forche, having coffee talking about self-checkouts, that uh, survey, that new report coming out from Sylvain Charlebois at Dalhousie University saying, for the most part, Canadians are are pretty much okay with the self-checkouts at the grocery store. And I suppose that extends to the Home Depot and some of these other places that have that technology. Kelly Moore, I want to start with you because um, you're the one that uh, has been shopping longer than any of us. So this whole idea of uh, of this change, are hey, you comfortable? With it? <laughs> that was a good one. I thought it was just a good one. It's rubbing off. Senior. I'm good sorry, Kelly. You know I love you. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I'm one of those people. I just love to, to talk, and, and so I like to go through the the checkouts where there uh, uh, there is somebody on the other side of the till. But I guess if you just have a few items every once in a while, I try to get through those things. But I, for whatever reason, oh, I we cannot, know the reason. I cannot <laughs> figure it out. I'll be going along, and then all of a sudden, and you have to wait now for the. The, the girl or the guy who 
have four others who've made the same mistake. The lurker. You. The lurker. Yeah, and finally, I just say, heck with it. I'm gone. <laughs> I'll I'll take all my stuff, and I'm going to go through the regular <laughs> process. Well, this actually plays off a text we just got. I don't go through self-serve because I do believe it is helping eliminate cashiers' mm-hmm. jobs. Plus, some time ago, a staff person wanted to walk me through self-service. Fine. We went through uh, the whole ordeal only to find out you cannot pay by cash. That said... Have an awesome day, you know, but this is the thing, right? It's not for everybody, Jeff. No, I guess not. And uh, in theory, I like the self-checkout because I'm the opposite of Kelly. I'm not really in the mood to make small talk with people if I don't have to. So I like to go through that. But also like Kelly, like the thing only works properly half the time. You need help because like one one of your items just won't ring up properly or whatever. Like, or how have they not been able to figure this out? I don't know. It's really only the... I have no issue with looking up the produce. Uh, Mike wrote in to say he now knows the number for bananas, so he has no issues because he <laughs> does that. So people are <laughs> stealing from stores with that produce, by the way. Really? Because you think well, they're yeah, not waving you, it or they just throw it you in? You or? type in, I'm buying the cheap apples when you got a bag full no, of expensive apples. it never even occurred to me that there that was go. a thing. What? But I think the issue is the the baggage part. Every single time you go to put it in the bag, yeah. and then it tells you it's not in the bag. Oh, or, that is. That's the, the part that gets area. me every time. Yeah, Jeff, do you go grocery shop shopping? Oh yeah, for myself here. And yes, there. and uh, you know I like them. I like to use them. They don't judge me on my my eating habits. Ah. You know. <laughs> Four bags of chips, some pepperettes. That's true. You don't have to make eye contact, right, with the computer. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You don't exactly. have to justify. It's not judging me. All of those pizza Very pops. Good. Very good. Exactly. That's the perfect reason to do it. That's excellent. It's like when you go to the liquor store for the third time in the week and you're like, put on a different coat. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're getting anything from like the pharmacy section, <clears throat> that they're not like raising their eyebrows like, what's wrong with this guy? Yeah. Oh, it's, it's uh, for a uh, friend. Yeah. <laughs> These are all excellent points. Points and I never thought about there the are non- some advantages that I hadn't considered. Uh, one of the questions Hal Anderson had yesterday when we discussed this in the newsroom was: Have prices gone down since they've introduced this? And uh, I would say not. Yeah. Well, Michael LeBlanc uh, from the retailers of Canada saying, "Well, hold on, that was never really the idea to eliminate jobs. It's just to put more people on the floor so that they can help consult with you because groceries are very competitive." And uh, I don't know if that's what what's happening. Maybe work in that well, that environment. I'd if, like to hear from you. If you're only going to, let's say, the grocery store might only hire one cashier for whatever shift dead zone in the afternoon, anyways. And instead of having everybody lined up at one till waiting for that one cashier, why not sure. have that one cashier looking over four tills where people can check themselves through? It's or, the or same stocking shelves. Like yeah. lots of those grocery stores, sure. they're, they're not just straight cashiers. Yeah. Now, in the bigger ones, for sure, they need to have those committed cashiers. But a lot of them are doing both. Like they might be fixed, you know, up in the deli section and then they move over to the cashier. Well, and then the other thing too, Loren, now that's becoming far more popular is the, you know, you order online. I see all of those staffers at, at the grocery store I usually shop at mm-hmm. with carts. And I used to think, oh, man, you know, must be nice to – but they're they're shopping for, for other sure. people. That That is really picking up momentum. We where, got a great yeah. text here. Oh, this is great. What would be funny is if the voice was more seductive, put your sweet onions <laughs> on the scale. <laughs> and for dessert, I'll have the lady fingers. Oh, boy. <laughs> hey, Forte, put – Bring the pizza pop over here. In that case, I'd be really creeped out. (laughs) (laughs) Then it's judging me for sure.
Manitoba has a long list of talented exports in music, entertainment, and business. No need to list the usual suspects on that front. What about some of the obscure celebrity connections to Manitoba? Loren, Justin Bieber's dad, lived in Winnipeg once upon a time. and My personal favorite, mm-hmm. Minnedosa, hometown shout-out, was once home to Lorraine Abdul. Uh, Rikus was the maiden name there. That's the, right. The late mother of pop singer and dancer. Mother or grandmother of Paula Abdul. Uh, when I'm, I was in grade seven, we thought it was the grandmother. Well, maybe it's the great grandmother, but I pulled this from the Brandon son. Oh, well, so. that's, and you know what? Her name is Lorraine Abdul. So even if it's a great, great, great aunt, I'm taking it. Take when, it. When we grew up, that was the thing. Paul that's Abdul, right. continue. Sorry. Yeah, no, Lorraine lived in both Winnipeg, Manitoba, uh, and Minnedosa as a youth. And her grandparents ran the general store in Minnedosa in the 1940s. I wonder if that ended up being the Chipperfield store. I want to dig deeper because that's the building I ended up owning. We're going to have to do a whole thing on store. Paul Abdul in Minnedosa, Greg. Well, I love it. The talented singer-songwriter was married to Julia Roberts for a sandwich and a cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, well, 21 months to be exact. He used to date a Winnipegger, and I would see him walking around the West End from time to time in the mid-80s. Interesting. I didn't realize it was him until after Larry Updike told a story about the fact that he dated a Winnipeg gal. Will Arnett. Everybody loves Will Arnett. He was born in Toronto, but both his parents were born and raised in Winnipeg. His maternal grandfather, William Polk, was the United Way of Winnipeg's first campaign chair in 1965. Arnett's affection for Manitoba came through in a GQ video where he explained Canadian slang. I want to play just a little bit of that for you quick. First Canadian slang is hoser. It's somebody who's very Canadian. You know, heavy Canadian accent, big hockey fan, wears a toque, kind of like a redneck. Clicks. Clicks is just short for kilometers. How far is it uh, from Winnipeg to Portage La Prairie? Oh, she's about, she's about 150 clicks, bud. Chesterfield is a sofa or a couch. The Peg, where both my parents are from, Winnipeg. The Six is Toronto, 416. That came after I left. We didn't, I grew up in Toronto, we didn't call it The Six. So, kind of lame. <laughs> I love when also Gitch. Is it Gitch? That's, uh, gitch, gotch, yeah. gitch, gaunch, Ginch. He says whatever you call it, it's all underwear. Well, Jake Tapper is the CNN anchor with the connection to Winnipeg. He tweeted this out Friday night. By the way, he was musing about the Florida recounts. Mm-hmm. Speaking of recounts, my great-great-grandfather was mayor of Winnipeg for four days Then he lost the recount. He was up on election day by 66 votes. That's the kind of margin that gets beat in a recount. His name was, oh, great. My eyes are failing me now. Turns out, uh, what's his name? Mayor Dyson? Yeah, Uh, Mayor Dyson. David J. Dyson was mayor from January 1st, 1917 to January 5th, 1917. So four full days he got to be mayor until... A recount uh, forced him out again. They realized he lost. So Jake Tapper is a pretty well-known political uh, analyst, reporter, commentator on CNN. Grandfather from Winnipeg. Great, great, Great for sure. And he was mayor for four days. 
what was in that speech from the throne that I am very optimistic about has to do with something called Meet North, a steering committee formed in December seven, uh, December 2017, rather, to support the implementation of the Look North Report and Action Plan. And joining us to discuss this is Chuck Davidson. He is, of course, the uh, president and CEO of Manitoba Chambers of Commerce and uh, growing up in northern Manitoba, no better person to do this and lead this steering committee. Uh, Chuck, thanks for taking some time with us, as always. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Lauren. So this is sort of close to your heart, first of all, Chuck, because you were born and raised in northern Manitoba? Well, not born, but I was raised, so I spent uh, the better part of my uh, years uh, in Flin Flon and Snow Lake until I was about 21 years old. So I, I'm very well adjusted and uh, understand uh, the challenges with northern Manitoba. So well, you know a lot of the challenges, as we've read over the years, is changing in the mining industry, natural resources contributing to that. And, and mentioned in the throne speech yesterday, and I know part of the strategy is identifying that, that entity that we're going to sort of pick as our, as our strategy moving forward. Am I reading that correctly? Like what the targeted yeah. mission here? Yeah, that's exactly it. And so basically what we've been doing with the Look North strategy for the better part of the last uh, almost 22 months is continually meeting with Northerners about what some of those challenges are. And through that, we've identified really six key areas, uh, that being strategic infrastructure, mining and mineral resources, education, tourism, workforce, Indigenous relations, uh, entrepreneurship and workforce again. And what we've done from that is, is also develop some recommendations. But one of the key recommendations that we oversaw as part of this was the need for a driver. For it, it, It's great to develop a strategy. But unless you've got someone that's got boots on the ground on a daily basis that's been able to uh, continually work on that strategy, that was going to be a key challenge for a volunteer group, a uh, uh, committee to continue to be that lead entity. So, so this is something that we've been asking for. Uh, we also know that we also need to develop a communications uh, strategy uh, for the North as well. How do we tell some of those stories? Uh, and I think that's a key part of this as well. And then again, bringing Northerners together on a more regular basis. What we found through the process is that as we were doing that, what we were doing is we were developing relationships. So a lot of things that are starting to happen in the North are a result of us just simply bringing people together and them having those discussions and being in the same room together. That 30-second elevator pitch for the North, Chuck, how do you, how do you present that? Well, I think it's all about opportunity, and I think it's, it's really about raising awareness. And a perfect example of this is, is last week uh, uh, we took 25 business leaders up to Thompson just to give them a better understanding of what the Thompson economy looks like. And, you know, we were, they were actually blown away because the first thing that we did is we, we went and toured Valet and we met with Valet officials. And there was always this sense from people uh, that were coming up saying, well, isn't Valet shutting down? And that's not the case whatsoever. Valet's got a very uh, a clear plan for the future. In fact, one of the things that they're very well positioned is as we move towards more electric cars in the world, Valet produces the perfect nickel for the electric car batteries. So they're looking at huge opportunities in terms of expansion uh, of what they're doing up there and of their product to be able to uh, uh, to be able to address something that's uh, very much needed in the market. So what we're really finding is it's awareness. I was and just going to say, Chuck, a lot more about what the opportunities are in northern Manitoba. Yeah, I was just thinking as you talked about that in the future and the nickel battery and all the rest, I wonder uh, how much of this is a perception issue about what we think were the problems in the past and um, and even were at fault for not looking too much for the future. Absolutely, and I think that's part of what, what we've also recognized. We need to tell more of that story, uh, and there needs to be greater awareness of what some of those opportunities in the north is, are as well. Uh, we also, in the past uh, two weeks, we had uh, Murat Al-Khatib from Arctic Gateway uh, and AGT Foods, the new owner of the uh, the railway to Churchill, was up north, and we had him in front of 250 people in the paw and telling the story about the optimism 
And what he sees for the future of Churchill in the port was one that uh, I've never seen a room uh, so optimistic after a speaker as they were that night. Chuck, we're going to invite you back to talk about this more extensively. Thanks for uh, your generosity with your time as always. Sorry we had to cut it short there, buddy. Anytime, Greg. Anytime, okay. Lauren. Okay. Chuck Davidson, uh, one of our favorite guests here on the start. He is the uh, president CEO of the Manitoba Chambers of Commerce, talking about northern Manitoba, look north, all sorts of incredible opportunities for that pro- and look of the north. province. I mean, he just said Literally. so many things where I'm like, I did not know that that was occurring. And therefore, I'm at the fault for perpetuating this idea that there's, that there's maybe not be those opportunities, right? It's the number one story at cjob.com and globalnews.ca. The headline is this. Babies born addicted to drugs up 42% at St. Boniface Hospital. Right? And in case people didn't hear that, I just think it bears repeating. We're talking about babies, some of Manitoba's most vulnerable, being born with possible drug addictions up 42% at St. Boniface, according to the Manitoba Nurses Union. And that's really putting a strain on resources. Here's MNU President Darlene Jackson. It just makes sense that the number of babies that are born to moms that have addictions are is increasing with the increase in the meth problem. Really need to look at a public education. We've done really well with public education and awareness on alcohol use in pregnancy, and I think we need to talk about that in uh, with drug use as well. For what that's for what that's doing to hospital staff, Darlene Jackson says. The issue is because babies, when they're born with addictions, they require more treatment and then they require more care, Greg. So the WRHA, we've been talking to them too about issues just with the neonatal unit alone. They say that they're working on all sorts of problems by putting that money into it. $3 million announced just a few weeks ago to the NICU. Money that will also help hire more staff, add more beds. But the concerns from the nurses' union on the impact meth continues to have on Manitobans like babies, uh, on the frontline workers, is why some were so upset yesterday that the province didn't release a specific meth strategy in their throne speech. Michelle Goronsky is the president of Manitoba's largest union, MGEU, and joins us on the phone now. Good morning, Michelle. Good morning. So it's easy, you know, we've been talking about this all morning. It's easy for me and us to sit there and say, okay, why didn't they have something specifically targeted towards the meth crisis in Manitoba? But from your perspective, what were you looking for? What would have been the one thing that would have made a difference to your members? Uh, again, putting a plan in place to deal with the meth crisis. You know, any leader in Manitoba will tell you that, that, you know, this meth crisis is gripping our city, it's gripping our province. The chief of police, the Winnipeg chief of police, who recently said it keeps him up at night. We know the folks that are working Main Street Project, Bear Clan, Mayor Bowman, and our frontline healthcare workers, and, you know, MNU now bringing this forward about the babies. This situation is serious, and it requires immediate action. I really think that the throne speech would have been the perfect opportunity for this government, this premier, to show us that he and his government are paying attention and they will act immediately and they will put something in place now. We need to know that there's education for our youth on what exactly this drug does. We need to know that there's protections there. Now, I don't know if you heard what the Premier said yesterday, talking about how addicts sometimes move from one substance to another and a focus on, quote, just meth might not make sense. If you had 10 minutes face-to-face with the Premier, what would you say to him about his response to that yesterday? Well, the first thing I would say is that, Premier, we know that the meth crisis is real. 
It's not what might be or might not be. We know that the meth crisis is here. We need to deal with it. And a follow-up to any other drug uh, abuse would come to that. But we know right now, right here in Manitoba, meth is, a, is, is in crisis. Our, our communities are in crisis. Our families, you know, our hospitals, the folks that are trying to provide the protection, our jails, you know, uh, the EMS staff that are out there dealing with this day in and day out. Premier, please pay attention. Come and talk to our folks. They have ideas on how we can move this forward, how we can make sure that Manitobans are safe. That's the first and foremost here. That's what we need to be looking after. And we did not hear that yesterday. But what would some of those ideas be, Michelle? You mentioned the the jails just this week. We were talking about how an increase of meth getting into correctional systems are having a real impact on staff working there. You've talked at length about how the frontline workers, the security guards at HSC, for example, are seeing more violence, more weapons, potentially as a result of meth. So what would some of those ideas be to help, even even if it's just a minor scale at one specific institution, to make things better? If we were going to start, Lauren, I would start with the public education. Educate our youth to what this is about. Educate the public all around Manitoba and then provide the education and the tools for the frontline workers, the staff that are dealing with this, so they can recognize the signs and symptoms when someone comes in. Meth psychosis can take days to come in to affect. It doesn't happen overnight. So, you know, this is what we need to be uh, aware of so that these people, it can be identified and it can be treated appropriately and quickly. Then the folks need to have the authority to use the education and the tools for, you know, that are dealing with the addicts, that are dealing with the violence that's happening each and every day. The education of the public, education and tools to the frontline staff to recognize signs and symptoms and be able to treat appropriately, and then the authority to provide the protection that we need. And those are three very simple things that we can help this Premier put into place ASAP. And let's get started, Premier. This is a crisis. We need to deal with it now. Michelle, that's a very very quantified and sizable list of specific things that you think should happen. Is there going to be a formal proposal put together in black and white for the Premier and for this government to consider? You know, we've never been asked formally to put something forward. I have sat down with the Minister of Justice, Minister Cullen. He's aware of this. He said that they're going to get back to us in, in, you know, in the near future. And I'm hoping the near future, Minister, you know, we will offer up any way that we can help. I've been saying that from day one when this government got elected. Come and talk to us. My door is open. The Premier told me that his door was open. Let's get together. Let's make this work. Let's protect Manitobans. Let's get rid of this meth crisis that we've got going on and let's deal with it together. Well, you've been talking about it at length with us and with others. You've written several letters to ministers over the past few months. I want to thank you for your time, Michelle. We're speaking with Michelle Garonsky, president of MGEU. Thank you. There's no one answer. And but, that, you know, finally, something specific, a list of things. And, well, they've and been I, talking I credit... about, about the, the protections for the security guards for months, whether or not that's something the province wants to do. That's one thing. I, I guess it's a question of, you know, even on the education front, is it enough to go to schools and say, don't do drugs? Or do we get more specific? I know they do in a lot of schools, right? This is the sure, of impact of cannabis. Do. This is the impact of alcohol. Yep. This is what can happen with you. Are we talking about meth? Certainly didn't when I was growing up. Because it just Not didn't even—it wasn't even on our radar. No, unless you were watching uh, Spokane cable TV, right. you didn't know what meth was, and so here we are in the midst of this. The only question I have about an advertising campaign is the fact that uh, you know when you're out at, for dinner 
and you see the the ad above the above in you know in the washroom about don't drink while you're pregnant that's one thing is someone who's indulging in meth going to have that same consideration for their unborn child and and where do you post those well, posters the 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 St. Boniface Hospital, the nurses' union, saying up 42% of babies addicted to drugs. So I don't just put the po- I don't know, put the posters out. If that makes a difference on the alcohol front, maybe it does have to be that simple. He's justifying his position on the murder of a journalist with two words: America first. President Donald Trump released, well, under on White House letterhead, um, the debate is uh, who actually uh, wrote this statement, uh, but lots of Trump-esque language. Reggie Giacchini joins us from Washington, D.C., and uh, is it fair to say this is only one of two or three major stories happening <laughs> in Washington right now surrounding President Trump today, one Reg? One of two or three, maybe over b- between now and the top of the hour, potentially, yes. Uh, but this is this is a big deal, and and you're right about how the how the, uh, the the tone of this letter was written on White House letterhead because there are a lot of exclamation points in here. So there are uh, many out there saying that this was a Trump dictated letter that was now sent out to everybody across the United States. Okay, so what he said was that he condemned the brutal slaying of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, saying it was a horrible crime, a country doesn't condone it. But then, despite all the different reports from U.S. intelligence agencies and other that the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia must have known something. This letter then went on to say, which is the president, in my opinion, it could very well be that the crown prince had knowledge of this tragic event. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. So they're essentially moving on. Is that it? Well, basically, yes. And I mean, this doesn't come as any surprise to anybody who's paid attention to Donald Trump over the last year and a half, over the last two years, because we have to remember that he doesn't often listen to the advice given to him from the intelligence community. We've seen this when it comes to uh, the ongoing issues, when it comes to Russian meddling in the election in 2016. We're seeing it right now. The CIA tells him something. He doesn't want to see it, uh, you know, the way of, of the CIA and the intelligence officials. He wants to see it his way and his way only. And he's facing wide, uh, wide ca- condemnation and panning from both sides of the aisle in Washington and around the world for this letter because he's basically saying, look, we know that this this journalist was killed. We likely know that you were involved in this Saudi Arabia, but there are you know more important things like dollars and the economy that I want to focus on. So if I say that you're involved in this, that means that we may have to sever ties right now. And what this is doing is potentially showing other leaders across the world, well, if we do something wrong, if the president has some good economic ties with us, we can probably get away with this. So Reggie, is this about the price of oil? Is this about an arms deal? A little bit of both? Where does it, what's the justification here? Well, he's looking at it right now just in the sense of the economy in total because there's this big $450, $500 billion deal, uh, arms deal between Saudi Arabia and the U.S. And the president says that, look, if we continue to fight Saudi Arabia on this and we decide that we're going to sanction them, we decide that we're going to cut this economic tie off, they're going to go to Russia and they're going to go to China and that's going to put hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. out of a job. That's not so true. It's not hundreds of thousands of jobs. But it is hundreds of billions of dollars that could be tied up. It's a tight thing for the president to be to be uh, to be watching, though, because there are people saying, look, we cannot have these economic ties. We cannot be, uh, you know, sitting there and turning a blind eye to what happened in Saudi Arabia. If we have to sanction them, if we have to take this one economic hit, it is worth it. We need to show the world that we don't bow to other people. So when he was asked, I know this question was raised. Are we we basically saying that human rights are too expensive to to fight for that money trumps? Unintended, I suppose, everything. He says it is what it is. 
Well, he says it is what it is. He says maybe he did it, maybe he didn't do it. This is how the president speaks in any kind of conversation because it basically gets him off the hook one way or the other, depending on which part of the sentence you want to hear. But yes, it shows that the almighty dollar is all that matters to a president. This is somebody who doesn't have a political background. He doesn't have a background when it comes to foreign policy. He has a background when it comes to business. So he sees all transactions as something that has to do with a dollar. So if you take this kind of big $450 billion investment between two countries and potentially take that off the table, to the president, instead of saying, look, human rights are important, he's saying, look, the, the America first policy of my administration that keeps money on people's, uh, you know, keeps food on people's tables by putting money in people's wallets is going to take a hit. And that's all that matters to him. Does it matter at all that some members of his own party are speaking out against this now? Is there any further fallout that could potentially influence this or is this well- it? Well, I mean, the president has had members of his own party, at, you know, at his throat for the last couple of months and the last couple of years, and it's never really swayed the president. We've had wide condemnation, like I said, across both parts of the aisle, and we've had it from, you know, foreign ministers from across the world saying, look, Mr. President, what you're saying right now, what you're doing is incorrect, and you need to change that. The president's put a lot of stock and a lot of faith in his son-in-law to try and build Middle East relations. So if the president decides that this is something, you know, that maybe he needs to go forward with by paying attention to the human rights factor, that could put some stress on how Jared Trump is dealing with these Middle East relations. So the president not only trying to watch out for what's happening in the country, but he still is very much focused on what could happen potentially within the family. We just have about uh, 60 seconds left here. Reggie, what's the second biggest story? Is it the New York Times story about the fact that Donald Trump tried to encourage the Department of Justice to go after James Comey and Hillary Clinton? Or is it the Ivanka email situation? Well, I mean, both of those are stories that are being watched closely right now. The president's kind of facing pushback right now on the the uh, potential prosecuting of Comey and Clinton saying, look, if that was something that you were going to do, you likely would have faced an impeachment process uh, because of things that were linked to that. If we're looking at Ivanka's emails, people are looking at her excuse of saying, I didn't really know what the rules are, as saying, how could you possibly not know about that when we're talking about something that was called Hillary's emails for two years? We're all watching a big thing right now called the markets. Oil and the markets trying to rebound after what happened uh, yesterday with that near 500-point drop. So Washington's a bit of a buzz right now, a bit of a spin, and like I said, we'll see what happens over the next four minutes as to how that story moves. I don't know if we had hours to talk to you, Reggie, if we get through all the questions <laughs> I have for you this morning, but I thank you very much for your time. Reggie Giacchini from Washington this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Always good to catch up with Reggie. You're right, with Reggie. We could spend an hour with him and probably not cover it all. We're pretty sure we saw him at West Edmonton Mall last night on TV. That's what I was like. But he's in the studio with us this morning. He works harder now than he did as a football player. (laughs) I'm sure of it. Pretty much. A lot more traveling, but I'm enjoying every minute of it. (laughs) You know the name, you know the face. Milt Stiegel in studio with us. But real quick, Loren, we've been discussing this off air. Do we need to even talk about this Romaine lettuce recall? It's not affecting Western Canada, but... Yeah, the recall was just for Ontario and Quebec, but Sobeys, out of, uh, I'm assuming, an abundance of precaution has announced that it's stopping the sale of all romaine lettuce products across its national store network until further notice. And if you've been following it, 18 people have been confirmed with cases of E. coli in two provinces, Ontario and Quebec, and CDC in the States said, don't be eating this romaine lettuce till we can get to the bottom of it. And even washing it isn't making a difference because it might be 
embedded, mm. so to speak, so far into the cells of the romaine lettuce. So, uh, yeah, Sobey's just uh, within the last hour saying they're not going to sell it until they get this cleared up. Well, CDC is in Atlanta, Georgia, which is home of our guest, Milt Stiegel. And uh, Milt, we wish you uh, a happy Thanksgiving. You're going to be away from your family again on Thanksgiving. Is, yeah. that, is that a regular thing now? Yeah, they're, they're, they're used to it. They're used to it. They know, uh, you know, I'm away working. Uh, every now and then uh, we talk about bringing them up here, but my wife, she doesn't want to deal with the cold weather. My kids want to come up but my wife doesn't want to come up with the cold weather. So we make sure we do it pretty big for Christmas time. Now, so for, when, oh, sorry. I just wanted Lauren. to ask, because we were talking about the difference between Canadian and American Thanksgiving and how Americans really do it up, yes. like Thanksgiving. So do you have a preference when you were li- when you were living in Canada? Did you find that you felt like we could do a bit more with our Thanksgiving compared well, no, to what you're used actually, to? No, uh, because uh, actually, my years with Dave Ritchie, he made sure he did it big. So when Doug Barry would do a little something, but Dave Ritchie, he would do it big. So he would have all the team over uh, to his house with their families and friends, whoever wanted to come over. It'd be a potluck thing. So we'd have 40, 50 people over there. So we, we got to enjoy Thanksgiving. I mean, regardless, you know, where you are, if you wake up in the morning, I say Thanksgiving, regardless where you are. So Wow, I like the way yeah. you put that, and it transitions nicely into why. Why you're here. Uh, we discussed just a few weeks ago about why you lend your face, your name, your voice to the HSC Millionaire Lottery, such a, a critical part of the healthcare infrastructure in our province. But it feels as though you spend more time in the cold weather uh, <laughs> days here than you did when you were a player, Milt. Yeah, uh, you know, it's that time of year. Uh, this is the final push. Uh, so this will be my final time in Winnipeg uh, this year, uh, but you never know. But this is our final push. You know, we're trying to make sure uh, the HSC has all the funding they can to continue uh, with the research, with the technology, with the advancement they're making. And uh, I made sure, uh, you know, I got back in. My bosses at TSN allowed me to come back in for this final push. Tonight, 12 a.m. is the last time to get your ticket. So we're expecting uh, to have a great push today. Uh, I'll be at the HSC from 11 to 2, signing autographs, taking pictures, kissing babies, and at 3. Three to five at uh, at London Drugs at Saint Vitale. So we're trying to do all we can to make sure the HSC has all the funding they can to make sure everyone is safe. You know, someone's bringing their baby now to make sure. You I, I'll, I'll kiss them. <laughs> I'll kiss them. I love babies. I, if my wife wasn't so old and I'm gonna have to change diapers, I would have had ten more kids. Yeah, so. I was in a store the other day buying some got some sleepers for Saint Boniface actually for their funding drive, and uh, I was like, I gotta get out of here before I like phone up my husband and say it's time for number three. Yeah. Oh my word! No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I have a reputation as well. As if, you know, if the baby comes around to me, you know, when there's a new baby, don't let Greg have baby until the end because once not go. it's not yeah. coming back into yeah. circulation. So I love the babies. And, uh, you know, this whole idea of, of giving back, not only uh, on your behalf, Milton, what you do for HSC and for the foundation, but Manitobans in general, uh, this whole idea that uh, we need HSC, HSC needs right. us. And clearly with uh, government cutbacks and the region of the healthcare system, uh, these lotteries may be as important now as they've ever been. Well, without a doubt, you know, and, and people, I know some people tend to say, well, I'm only going to be able to buy one or two tickets. That's all it takes. If you have a lot of people doing a, a little, you get a lot. So whatever you can contribute, uh, it, it means a lot. You know, I've been able to uh, uh, to meet some of the people who's actually been affected. And all the people, you know, have a story. But when I talk to the little kids and talk to the parents who have babies, I mean, that touches me more than anything. It makes me realize that my little, uh, whatever I can do, uh, whatever I can show my face, lend my name to something, it means a lot to me. So I'm hoping everyone can go out there and just do their part. Whatever it may be, do your part, and we all can do a lot together.
I know you're always so generous of your time, Milt, but we also like to talk in Manitoba how generous Manitobans can be when it comes to giving back. Basically, what I'm going to ask you here is, do you think we're the most generous people? Without a doubt. (laughs) Without a doubt. I mean, the license plate says it all. Friendly Manitoba. Uh, You know, there's no more friendlier place than Winnipeg and Manitoba. So it's great to be involved in this place. I always say this is my my second home, my other home, not my second home, because I spend so much time here and I'm treated so well here. Well, uh, I would be surprised if there's anybody in Winnipeg or Manitoba that's wanted to meet you that hasn't. <laughs> if you fall in that category, a couple of genuine opportunities today at the Thorlickson Avenue Mall that's just on William Avenue, the sort of the main entrance to HSC. Milt will be there from 11 a.m. till 2 p.m. And then if you're on the south side of the city, London Drugs, just inside their entrance at St. Vitale Centre from 3 to 5. Like I said, if you have never met Milt Stiegel, you probably haven't been out in public, but if you'd like to meet him, today's a genuine opportunity to do that and to thank him for all he's done uh, for Winnipeg. And he's promising to, if you bring your baby, there's going to be a kiss, there'll be mm-hmm. a handshake. Yeah, I'm, I'm not changing any diapers. How much have you been asked about football this week from people? I've been asked a lot. Some people didn't want to ask me because they were kind of disappointed in what happened last weekend, but a... Hey, it's part of the landscape, you know. Unfortunately, they couldn't get it this year. And what we've been saying for like the last 28, 29 years, maybe next year. We'll have to see. So prediction for this Sunday? Have you made one yet? Uh, we're not doing that yet. I'm not doing <laughs> that off, yet. I'm, I'm predicting a high-scoring, entertaining, maybe overtime type game. That's what I'm predicting. Did yeah. you have a reaction to uh, Dave Dickinson's uh, Wow, Canadian that was mafia. something else. That was something. That was surprising. And I know he tried to cover it. You know he got fined for that also. Yes. Yeah, so just trying to cover it up saying right? it was just a code name because, you know, the Bombers are ran by Canadians or whatever, head coach, GM, and president. But, I, I mean, it, it's hard. Uh, and I don't think he meant anything malicious. I don't no. think there was an Ill, any ill intent. But he should never say anything like that. Is never there, say anything. Is there, is there, is there, does the passport come into effect in the shucking and jiving and the back and with, forth in, 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 the, in the dressing room? Without a doubt. I mean, you have some players, and I'm just going to be honest with you, you have a lot of players who say, I mean, how can this guy make the team when I'm better than him just because he's Canadian? A lot of that goes on. But you have to realize it's the Canadian Football League for a reason. It's the CFL. That's just part of the game you have to live with. That's like saying, why do I have to play in this cold weather? Because you're in Canada. <laughs> Understand you're in Canada. It's going to get cold. So it's part of the landscape. You like it or not, it's just the way it is, and it's the way it should remain forever. Come on down to HSC, 11 till 2. Say hi to Milt Stiegel if you can't make it down in that time frame in that part of the city. London Drugs, St. Vitale Center. Three till five. Get your tickets now. HSCMillionaire.com. Milt Stiegel, always great to have some time with you, my friend. Thank you for this. Oh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Okay, well, the real world is tough sometimes, which is perhaps why some people like to write more about fantastical things? Is that even the right word? Fantasy Fantastical is perfect. Books are always a great gift for the holidays, Loren. And if you have a voracious young reader in your home, like I do, have two of them, in fact, you might want to consider this next book. Yeah, and it's not just because it was written for teens, but also because it was written by a Winnipegger with some scenes set in our fine city. We had the pleasure of speaking with Sam Beekle about her new book, Children of the Bloodlands the second in a trilogy, which is now available at McNally Robinson. And we spoke to her earlier about what's being called a YA novel. 
These are marketing terms in the publishing industry, and YA stands for young adult, which is anywhere from 12 and up. But uh, to be perfectly honest, the people buying them are between the ages of 18 and 35. We hear that often when we have uh, authors come in who, who's, who direct something towards young adults, but it really kind of hits all ages. And even when I read the title, Children of the Bloodlands, I was like, oh, we're really going to have kids read this book called Children of the Bloodlands. We sure are. <laughs> but there's something out there's something about this fantasy world now that really is drawing a lot of people in. So what first got you writing about this? Um, well, I grew up kind of on a healthy diet of nerdy stuff, and fantasy was uh, where I found my metier. So um, like who? Who did you read and uh, watch? Like, and... You know, like Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia. I also was watching a ton of anime, and I was just this super nerdy, um, introverted teenager, and that was kind of when I started getting my writing in. So always sort of thinking in a fantastical world. Sure. Yeah. And also Winnipeg itself is pretty fantastical. So I really wanted to marry the two. What do you mean by that? Well, there's just a lot of things around here that could be attributed to, who knows, magical realism, ghosts, monsters. I mean, why not? Like uh, in the first book, there is a giant battle on the Osborne Bridge and, you know, a lot of Winnipeg is destroyed in it and it's so much fun and I just kind of figured, why not? And I did get some pushback from publishers and agents about that because, oh, you know, you should really consider setting this book in an American city. And I was just like, why? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because one of the leading science fiction authors, and he's got another amazing title, I want to have this in my job title one day, Futurist Robert Sawyer, mm -hmm. his last big book was partly set in Winnipeg and surrounded the Jets making it to the Stanley Cup final against Ottawa. So Winnipeg, I've always said, is kind of a character in Hollywood. And so I'm surprised you got pushback. Has your stand to insist on Winnipeg being the backdrop? Uh, have you received any apologies for for the for, for the for the pushback in the first place? Oh no. I mean, I also work in the publishing industry and I understand where they were coming from because you know, you want to have a commercial bend to really give a book its best shot, but also there is standing for your integrity and authenticity and I've been born and raised here. And so it was really important to me to include Winnipeg as the setting and as a character, as you said. Um, so tell us a little bit about Children of the Bloodlands. Well, this book takes place about three months after Scion of the Fox. Uh, and the and before we continue with that, Scion, because we didn't know, Scion mm -hmm. of the Fox means... It means the last of a family or a person carrying a legacy. Okay, so this yes. is a sequel to that. That's right, yes. And the main character, Roan Harkin, um, has kind of realized that there is a lot more going on than a monster hiding at the, uh, the frozen bed of the Assiniboine River, which, uh, spoiler, she defeated. Um, but there is a lot more to it than that, and she has to go out into the wide world and kind of deal with these magical people. Um, so in the whole plot of the Realms of Ancient series, which is a trilogy um, that these books are a part of, there are these people called denizens who have elemental powers given to them by animal gods. And But there's a lot more going on all over the world with these people than she first expected. Well, I find it interesting you use that terminology, spoiler alert, because <laughs> my kids are voracious readers mm -hmm. and they read the same books over and over again. So even though they know the plot, they know the outcome, they continue to read these books over and over. It's not a one and done thing for mm -hmm. people. Can you explain that to me? Something that's got a story, that's got this crescendo, that's got this this massive build up to an ending, yet 
people will read these books more than once, more than twice sometimes. I mean, I think it also has to do with what type of book it is. And if there's a ton of world building and there's a lot of moving parts or things that you missed because you were getting so into the story um, and people do want to kind of go back and get back into that world. I mean, we see that a lot, especially with Harry Potter series where people are just rereading them constantly, constantly, constantly. Yeah. And um, because you just love you know, the world and you love the magic system or you just, there's just something about it. Any advice for young listeners out there or maybe parents who have young people in their lives, not only that like to read, but like to write stories. How do you, what's your word of encouragement uh, for them in terms of uh, how do you become a, a better writer? Is it just a matter of doing it or... I mean, writing is like any discipline, like say training for a marathon or practicing an instrument, uh, you do have to practice it. And anyone can be a writer if they just write. I always find that fascinating because you think you have to have this innate skill, which I th- certainly a lot of people do, uh, or this creative mind, but it mm-hmm. might be more disciplined than you think, than just this it is. free spirit type of thing going right. on in your house. And I also started out as an artist. Um, and that, you know, again, you don't really improve unless you practice. So there is an innate, it's not an innate skill, it's more an innate passion. Um, and my probably number one advice for parents if your children are into writing is to encourage them and to not really be hung up on oh well you're not going to make a living at that or oh that's really hard and it's hard to get published and of course it is Um, but so is everything else and if your child is very passionate about creating their own worlds and getting into this um, encouraging them and just saying great so you should you should do that you know what's funny the the thing that killed my love of drawing was when somebody bought me a how to draw book. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and tried to formalize the process. So mm-hmm. is there a detriment there in terms of formalizing a process for for kids that just want to create, whether it's sculpture, whether it's painting, drawing, or writing? I think, yes. I think a lot of people do struggle with the formal structure of that, and it can kind of be a killer. I do have seen that in the art world as well, where art school just kind of Mm -hmm. drills it out of you. Um, I think that it's different for everyone. I think some people do thrive with structure, and I think I'm glad that those programs exist for them. But for others, um, it's just finding more opportunities, like if there's a short story contest, or if there's, you know, you want to start a write club at school, or something like that. Something where it's, you know, especially when you're just starting out where you're not really focusing on craft, you're just kind of focusing on, I have a story and I'd like to tell it and I'm going to just do the best I can. Um, I wrote my first book when I was 16 and it was published when I was 23, but um, I edited it very heavily when I was 23 because my voice had changed so much. Um, But it's only because I was encouraged by teachers and by my parents and that I was able to see it through. Thank you, Sam. That was fantastic to meet her for the very first time. I think we'll be hearing much more of her. Uh, Loren, it's always rewarding when we kind of pick these young either entrepreneurs or artists or uh, citizens of the future, I like to call them, and then see them rise. I think she's going to be a rising star and somebody you'll be hearing about a lot. The book is Children of the Bloodlands, and the third book in the trilogy is actually due out next fall. She says she's already got it mostly written. Got it done already. She's it's amazing. really impressive when you talk to what, what I thought was so neat about what she said beyond the book and the plot and the idea that you know young adults are really into this genre now. I think it was so great how she talked about getting kids to write and the idea that you can be a writer doesn't mean it has to be your professional career, but to to not just read, but to write. And I thought that was really cool. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.